Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a movie from conception to production all the way to release and reception. We have a new-ish movie to streaming. It's been on streaming for a while. Uh, Chris, this is your choice. So I'm going to have you introduce this because you need to take <sighs> credit and I, blame yeah, for this. It's mostly blame. Let's be honest. Uh, I don't know why I do this to myself, um, but it... Uh, I mean, I don't know. In some ways, I'm glad we're revisiting it. In some ways, I definitely already regret it. Um, It's V for Vendetta, the 2005 Wachowski scripted, but James McTeague directed. And we'll talk about why that name doesn't sound familiar to anybody (laughs) in just a moment. Uh, But it's uh, obviously pretty seminal adaptation, for better or worse, of the Alan Moore graphic novel uh and it came out probably at the height i don't know when did the watchman movie come out was that that was a few years later yeah i was like 2009 i had to yeah. guess i'll look it up while but i feel like chatting. the mid 2000s it's like everybody discovered alan moore the author of probably those two titles in particular but as but also like several runs of other big uh comic book titles and uh was just kind of seen as kind of the godfather of like smart comics and this was uh kind of exactly in our wheelhouse as young 20 somethings uh fresh out of college um kind of deal grappling with the the existence of uh being (laughs) in in a in a capitalist society and trying to pull our weight in it for the first time um, but also feeling a lot of resistance against it. And also it just has a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, that macho appeal of, uh, uh, of, I don't know, pop anarchism. If, if you, yeah. if you would, <laughs> it's, but it's, I mean, okay. So why'd I pick it? Those are all the reasons why shouldn't I have picked it? It's <laughs> a mess. Um, especially for those of us, like I think both Dan and myself, right. That, uh, devoured, uh, both this original graphic novel as well as the Watchmen graphic novel, probably yeah. around this time period, right? Yeah, I think I read Watchmen right when this movie came out, maybe. And then I read this graphic novel maybe a couple years later. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I love them both. I mean, I think Alan Moore is an absolute genius. I mean, what else? I'm like, I'm in his demo. Like, I am his demo. Like, I'm the guy. Um, and like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, even when it came out, I mean, what did you what was your reaction when it came out? Because that's always important to how that changes. Yes. Because when this came out, I was like, oh, hey, this is like really exciting and interesting and, and good. And I enjoyed it. Uh, was that did you have a similar reaction like that when this came out in 2005? You know, mine was more muted. I I I, I mean, I also I probably had read the graphic novel the, the year before or maybe that yeah. year even. Um I, I read it in Watchmen back to back, got them both from the library. Uh, and I was definitely, I definitely felt disappointed upon my first watch. And, you know, I was still, you know, in my early 20s. Uh, actually, I think I was like, yeah, yeah I was like 21 uh, when this movie came out. And so uh, I was really excited about it because of the, um, uh, because of Natalie Portman, I thought that was a uh, a really perfect casting as Evie. <laughs> Wait, why? <laughs> uh, I was pretty obsessed for a, probably a good time in my late. Wait, teens, why are you obsessed 20s. with Natalie Portman? 
Uh, is this like, wait, the year before, don't forget the year before she was in Garden State. That's probably why. Yeah. <laughs> but also, yeah, but that was also a huge disappointment to me, too. So oh, I don't really Talk know. About disappointment. Who's going to fall on that grenade? And she's that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's our destiny. That'll be our series yeah. finale. The series finale is Garden State. <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, um, I don't know. I, I wanted it to be so good, but uh, I almost immediately forgot it and rewatching it uh, last night for the first time since it was in the theaters. Um, I, I, it all came flooding back to me why it was such a forgettable adaptation of such a it, important story. Yeah. Like I, I rewatched it um, this last weekend, I think. And I was blown away by how much I just absolutely hated it. <laughs> um, it, I don't, and I can't even, I, I'll, we'll go into why and stuff like that. But like, I think one of the things that I think is a little bit misleading about the the movie is that if you go into it thinking, oh, I know Alan Moore, I read like I really got an Alan Moore like after this, like I read all the early Swamp Thing stuff and it's like so good, yes, yes. but so unique and interesting and just like filled with edge, right? Like everything he does is he do like a random plot and it just feels vital for some reason because the way he writes it and sort of engages intellectually with the reader um you you bring that baggage to this movie and you go into it and you and i'm looking at like the producers and all that kind of stuff and then you realize oh this is like a big blockbuster film right this is not an indie movie this is not like a left of the dial type film right um you know it's from these people who've produced like what die hard predator weird science lethal weapon the Warriors. I'm looking at all this. This Joel Silver and Silver Pictures is what I'm going through. Executive right. Decision, uh, Assassins, Demolition Man, um, and then like Swordfish in 2001. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and so you re- you see that, and then if I saw that context, I'd be like, "This is the guy who produced it from this Silver Pictures." I'd be like, "Oh, like it makes so much more sense when you realize who's actually making this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it just comes across, I don't know. It just comes across as just this very limp, uh, extraordinarily boring film for a subject matter that I was super into. And to some degree, I'm very still into political theory and stuff like that. Um, so you would think that I would still be able to get something out of this movie, even if it was kind of a, um you know a fish on 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 dry land type situation and it just there's nothing i just get nothing out of it Mm -hmm. um did you get i mean that's the weird thing too when you think about it like in in terms of who's directing this and who's producing this um did you when you first watched this did you think hey this is a big blockbuster you know and I i think that was probably something i was not as keen about when I was 21, there was definitely a distinction between like movies you saw at the art house cinema versus movies you saw at the multiplex. And it was Mm -hmm. clear that this was a multiplex movie, but it still felt like, especially with it being written by the Wachowskis. And even though the matrix sequels were definitely disappointments as well, coming right before this one, there was still making sense. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like the, the progression. Yeah. And, uh, there was still like there was still that glimmer of hope that like because they had hit such a home run with the original Matrix that there would be some kind of fire, some kind of like interesting, you know, subversion of the blockbuster going on here. But there's not. 
And that's yeah. that's the huge issue of it. So let's yeah, let's break this down as far as uh, who's actually putting their money and talent behind the camera for this movie. So, yes, Joel Silver, Silver Pictures, tons of trash throughout uh, the 80s, 90s and 2000s with a couple exceptions. Obviously, you know, you mentioned yeah. Die Hard and I, I know you say that with love because like it's. Oh, it's a classic. Uh, it's a classic, but it's it's very much indebted into formula and blockbuster. It's a studio film. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, um, House of Wax. Uh, it's a, a completely silly remake that Silver did in the mid 2000s. But that's actually something that, it, you know, he knows what he knows the wheelhouse that he's in. He's not trying to go above that yeah. kind of trap that that trash. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when he's trying to do something like this, it's it's obscene. So then the other producer that is important to mention here is Grant Hill, um, who's putting his money up um, behind Silver um, and the Wachowskis. And he was kind of the I feel like the main reason why there was a good balance between kind of Wachowskis uh, completely off the wall idea of the Matrix universe, but then packaging it so that it became like this touchstone blockbuster in the late 90s because he was also the guy that uh adapted the crow in 94 with alex proyas and brandon lee and he was also a major force behind titanic thin red line ghost in the darkness uh <laughs> 96 movie that yeah. <laughs> uh, does not stand the test of time but was trying to do something different right yeah in mm-hmm. the terms of blockbusters and so I, I, it just felt like they, they were hoping that just by combining the right talent and putting enough money behind it, that it would, uh, you know, light the match, so to speak, that movies like The Crow and The Matrix did. But it just, it just doesn't. And I have to say that I was honestly surprised when I picked this movie. I did not realize that the Wachowskis are not the ones actually behind the camera, so to speak. <sighs> the old switcheroo. Huh? Who directed this thing? <laughs> James McTeague. Who is this guy? Uh, he's got an oh, interesting no. kind of. Um, uh, he kind of fell. He kind of fell upwards. Uh, I think is the term that <laughs> some people use for um, these kind of no-name white men that uh, manage to get success in Hollywood with little to no uh, creativity or raw talent. Um, he was a PA in Australia for a number of years, and then he got his hooks into the Hollywood system by directing this really huge cheese fest action movie called no escape starring Ray Liotta. You'll recognize the cover of it. It was, you know, uh, uh, it was that movie that was never rented, but always on the shelf <laughs> at blockbuster. He also, uh, was second assistant director on street fighter, then landed a, another second assistant directing gig on Alex Proyas's dark city. So there's that grant Hill connection. Once again, he's starting to make contacts. And then eventually, uh, he got that same second AD position on the matrix, but through sheer luck, he was promoted to first AD when the original first AD dropped out. And so then that begins his relationship with the Wachowski sisters. And the rest is history. He got the attention of George Lucas, who then hired him to be first AD on episode two, Attack of the Clones, arguably the worst movie, even including Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> and uh, it just, it, he he's a guy that, you I mean, if you know him, you know that he directed V for Vendetta, but that's about it because after this movie came out and even though it was relatively successful and as i mentioned before for better or worse it's still very much remembered in the uh, pantheon of 2000s movies 
uh, he didn't do much of anything. He had a really low budget action picture starring Pierce Brosnan in 2015 called Survivor, a biopic of Edgar Allan Poe that nobody remembers starring John Cusack in 2012 called The Raven. And then he had a very slight success with a movie breaking in a couple years ago, which I don't remember, but apparently made a triple its production budget um, starring Gabrielle Union. Uh, And so he's he like he's not it's that's the thing. He's not trying very hard at all in this. And if he is like there's it just seemed to be like a network decision. Wachowskis were too busy or just, you know, wanted somebody to take their script and run with it. Um, Maybe they saw the writing on the wall with the way Alan Moore was reacting to Hollywood's treatment of uh, both Watchmen and V for Vendetta going through the industry at this time. I don't know. Why do you think they went with a very unproven name for such an important title? I feel like there's obviously like a very sort of close relationship with they have uh, with Fatigue. And I think that like essentially they just wanted what did they what were they doing at this time? Right. What do they do after Speed Racer? Right. Yep. So they were like probably producing and doing pre-production on Speed Racer. It does seem kind of weird that they didn't follow through on this movie. They rewrote the script for it. Like the original script that this was um, started with, they basically rewrote the entire thing, making their version much closer to the graphic novel. But then when you actually watch the movie, it feels like it's not even remotely close to the graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, So I don't know if that happened. Um, I think, I don't know. I think maybe they're trying to do a guy a favor. Like I think they just probably got super close and like wanted to give him a, a breakout thing to do. It is a really big movie to give somebody a shot on. Mm-hmm. It's also a very difficult film. Um, you know, filming something like V for Vendetta, if you've read the graphic novel, I think you'd be like, no, thanks. Like this is, it's really intricate. There's a lot of moral gray area throughout the entire thing, especially for the protagonist. Um, how is that going to translate over to, to our film? You know, that's a quite a hefty feat to lay at somebody's feet to sort of do this as their first real big film. Um, I mean, that's uh, honestly when you, I, you know, thinking back to the wildland podcast and like whenever you, you know, do the, the postmortems, right? Like you can see it right here. Like I'm sure the script of the Wachowskis put together was pretty good. Right. Um, but like this director, just unproven. And like when you watch, when you watch the film, the direction is not good at all like it's just not good and the scenes and the like the the sets that they have it feels for some reason i watched it and i was like this feels so freaking dated yeah like it feels like it's 15 years ago and that's not you know yesterday but it it felt like it could have been shot in like the late 90s it almost felt like it was 1998 right when you were watching it i was like this does it doesn't fly off the screen at all um, which is super unfortunate because I think the graphic novel has a lot to say and this movie is trying to say a lot of that, but just can't get it through because the director's too green. Um, and I think that it's just comes across as very, very messy. You know, I think, um, you know, trying to create their vision here it, in his hands just does not work. It doesn't translate. Uh, and to me, that seems like it just became a problem over and over and over again in this movie where, there's something unique, something raw, something full of energy that he just cannot get on screen for whatever reason. Um, it feels very. I don't know. Thin. I mean, 
What was that? If I was saying it feels very thin, like they're it it it. Oh be, yeah, you're taking something so huge with so many ideas, and you're like making the like uh, I don't know. It feels like teenagers with a green screen in a garage uh, rendition <laughs> of it. I was just so astounded, and that's one of kind of the, the the key things that I picked up when researching the production of this movie is there's yeah. zero, absolute zero on loca- on location shooting in this movie there's maybe a couple stages right right except for like those i was trying to guess it while watching the film uh Mm -hmm. again last night and i i mean the only thing that i can tell that was like a true outdoor shot was probably like the the crowds uh of uh guy fox masks in the climax and like the um kind of when uh stephen ray's inspector character is uh imagining what is going to happen the next day on Guy Fox Day? And there's some like clear outdoor shots of uh, you know people in Guy Fox masks riding bikes and the shoot the the imagined shooting of the young girl and that kind of thing. But other than those like very specific and kind of outlier scenes that happen so much later in the movie, it's it's so it feels so interior and and not just like not even like good interiors. Like I'm not sure what no. production designer was on this. I didn't go that far into my research, but it feels. <laughs> absolutely like they just sat in those sound stages and like worked on the lines to death this very much feels like a movie where they just overworked the dialogue so much especially with like all the interactions between portman and weaving that they completely forgot about the look of the movie which is so sad because that's kind of the point of a graphic novel and you know say what you will about Zack snyder's attempt at adapting watchmen um i mean he he has a look and he 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 puts a lot of elbow grease into it it's not the elbow grease that i would agree with but he at least it 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 showed that he was caring about uh the the scenes that he was putting on the screen even if the whole thing was kind of also a train wreck in other ways um i'm curious what you thought uh i was looking at specifically the um the the concept because i feel like I was super into this book and Watchmen uh, around this time period, but I didn't get yeah. super deep into really understanding a lot about UK culture and politics. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could give some uh, background, because I know, like you mentioned before, you're you're politically motivated and I think you understand what's going on in the UK or what's been going on in the UK and maybe what fueled Moore's vision. And one of the most interesting comments he made about uh, what the biggest failure of this adaptation was is that it felt more American, uh, ironically, because even though it's yeah, directed by I mean, an Aussie. But you got to remember, like, so when this was written, it was, you know, a direct sort of reaction to Margaret Thatcher's UK. And, you know, more saw her as this sort of dogmatic right wing radical um, who came to power and was doing all things like poll taxes and stuff like that that led to riots and in various sort of uprisings that weren't real revolutions, but almost came close a couple of times. It felt like Um, the biggest difference here is that Moore has a super specific political vision of anarchism and it's much more rooted in sort of the actual history of anarchism and what that, and what that means uh, to him specifically into the sort of the political sort of theory of it. Um, And what's represented in the movie 
um, is not that at all. And so essentially in the movie you get, and this is why I find it so fascinating because it is this, um, this sort of um, way to go back to the mid 2000s and think about what was happening in the United States with the war on terror, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And it feels really of that time. And the conflict that was going on back then was between neoconservatives in the United States um, and I guess you call it centrists or liberals. Neoliberals is the term we throw around a lot now. But back then, it was sort of your middle of a road corporate Republicans and Democrats versus these radicals called neoconservatives who really wanted to expand the American empire through military means. And that's why we invaded Iraq. It wasn't for any other reason than expanding the empire and taking their oil, essentially. And so V for Vendetta is a response, an American response to that political situation that was happening um, back in the mid-2000s and early 2000s, post 9-11. What Moore is talking about uh, through the lens of 80s UK politics is more this conflict between fascism and it's very explicitly fascism it's not any other sort of form or political viewpoint it's not socialist it's not totalitarianism necessarily it's fascism explicitly versus anarchism which is his viewpoint of the world and his viewpoint of anarchism is is simply as there cannot be a state a state does not exist and it cannot exist and essentially every single person is their own leader is his viewpoint. And that's a very radical thing to believe and say. Um, and I think none of that comes through in the movie. <laughs> like absolutely right. none. Uh, and, you know, I think it is what it is. It, what blows my mind about this movie. And like, if you, if you're interested, you see this movie and you have not read the graphic novel, read the graphic novel because it is so much more of a rewarding experience about these ideas about fascism versus anarchism. Um, and sure you can filter it through your own experiences, in the United States and what we've been going through, but it is, um, a very specific response to what was going on, uh, in Moore's life and, you know, Margaret Thatcher's, um, UK. Uh, but there's, it's almost when you read it, it feels more like a philosophy paper almost, like and how he's um, expressing these different viewpoints, right? Um, and I think the biggest difference, if we just had a throw, like how is this different than the graphic novel, is that there is a good versus evil in the movie that does not exist at mm -hmm. all. And mm -hmm. I mean at all in the graphic novel. Like Alan Moore is just not going to write a story where there's good guys and bad guys. It's not going to happen. And I think when you watch the movie, that's the entire point of the movie. And so it's almost like you can call it an adaptation, but like I think realistically, it's just kind of an empty adaptation um, because it misses basically the entire point of the graphic novel um, in a variety of ways. Um, I don't know. Did you kind of feel that way? I mean, I have a very strong opinion about it, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I noticed this time around is that uh, you're right that it's an empty adaptation. There's kernels here and there, though, right? It's yeah. like mm -hmm. you you hear those nuggets and like it's almost like if you've read the graphic novel um, and I haven't read it in years, but even if you haven't read it in years, you can almost tell like which pieces are like di lifted directly from uh, yeah, you can. these, yeah. these uh, eloquent prose in and which is just like ridiculousness and nonsense and vagaries uh, 
put together to fit that good versus evil mold. And it's almost interesting because like the first act of the movie in my rewatch, and they were, you know, using some hard hitting words. First of all, I did want to make sure to mention that, you know, despite the movie, it being uh, a mess, um, it it is interesting uh, watching it in 2020. America's Trump, uh, Trump's America. <laughs> um, <laughs> America's Trump. <laughs> that too. Uh, because there are a lot of fascinating, uh, cro- you know, cross references but those also exist in the original text so like like dan said i'd also agree like just go right for the graphic novel or if you've been uh spoiled by the movie already that's okay you can still get a rewarding experience reading it but like in that first act there are some like key terms thrown around like terrorist like and but yeah oh yeah and and so like it's peppered with those things where it's like almost like you get like this i almost got like these little tingles where it's like, oh, wait, is there something I missed in my like early 20s watch? But then it's just like never followed through on. Right. And yeah. they keep coming back to V as a hero and Evie as, you know, his his protege. And uh, there's really no follow through in the sense that it's politically uh, comparable to what Moore was trying to get to get through. But also it's not even comparable to any kind of. I think American viewpoint either because yeah, that's a it, good point. It feels all jumbled in terms of like, uh, you know, who was there uh, during the two thousands trying to, you know, go against the tyranny of the neocons. Nobody and <laughs> like it is interesting looking at back at it for the first time after we've seen you know groups like Occupy and Anonymous uh, take yeah. on the gay, Guy Fox mask as its own uh symbol and also kind of seeing the the lack of follow through in both of those <laughs> groups in in <laughs> american culture and society uh yeah. it almost, it's 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 apt and sadly so yeah i mean it is I, i'm i'm obviously very hard in the film but like if you viewed it outside of if i did not know about alan moore and i didn't know about the graphic novel and i didn't know about his other stuff that he wrote um, and I saw this, I'd be like, oh, this is like kind of an interesting dystopian sort of movie. There's a lot of it here that I think the acting is pretty good for the most part. Like, I don't mm-hmm. really have a lot of problem with the acting. Um, what I think what blows my mind about it um, now, and it just maybe even, you know, thinking about like how people have reacted to this film is that there's a lot of people, uh, let's just say, because we, we know the United States more that, uh, worship this film yeah and think that it is like this extremely profound statement about politics um and i remember seeing this and thinking hey that was pretty good but i didn't find anything profound philosophically and politically in it whatsoever for the most part but that's not the case with millions of other people in the united states they've seen it they love it they think that there's something there's a lot of meat on the bones um and I can't figure out why that is. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I really, you know, I'm trying to think back. Like I got, I've always been into politics, but I got, like super into politics when I was in grad school. And this would have been like a, a year and some after this movie came out in like, I was a community organizer. I like, um, you know, started this sort of left wing group on campus. And I was all, I basically didn't really go to school. I just did politics for two years. And, um, thinking back then about this movie and like how people have changed their viewpoint of politics 
I think people have gotten so cynical and so anti-government in general that like this movie really is a siren song to them that this is sort of like it's a big fuck you uh, explicit. I got to mark it explicit now um, to <laughs> uh, uh, just like the man. But like who the F is the man? Like, right. I don't know what we're fighting against here because this movie came out. It was massive. It was huge. It's only gotten more popular, I think, culturally since it came out. And yet half the people that saw this movie voted for Trump. <laughs> like someone needs to explain that to me. Yeah, because that doesn't compute because either they love the movie for the wrong reasons or this movie does not have the message maybe that it intended to have. Um, I don't know. What do you think? about? I mean, do you think that has you you're you're uh, with young people all the time as a teacher? So do you think have you heard people like younger people talk about this movie and like, you know, I no, know. I haven't, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I know I know the, the passion is out there uh, both on film Twitter for whatever reason. That was one of the reasons this movie came across like somebody on my feed that I greatly respect was like uh, V for Vendetta is on Netflix now and it still whips ass. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. No, it doesn't. What? Um, but uh, it really feels like there is an aspect. I think you, you hit on something with this idea of, uh, you know, whether you are, you know, on Reddit as uh, somebody that is trying to look for that kind of, um, anything that they can latch onto that makes them feel like they're going against something, but it's not yeah. anything in particular and it's not for any reason in particular. And that's part of like the danger of like such a thin muddled version of this story. And perhaps one of the reasons why more disavows it with such uh, vehemence is because the danger of that, you know, vague version, not to speak in all V words, what the hell am I doing? Like freaking. Yeah. <laughs> dumb version of the character um <laughs> but like it it makes it dangerous because then you end up having a lot of these young people that are grabbing onto just this feeling of rebellion and thinking that something like voting for trump is a rebellion against the system yeah that's what it is i mean there's a right. direct line between this this movie and the joker in dark Knight. Oh, gosh yeah i definitely thought of that the the connection between you know it's the, the same it's the same type experience. of <laughs> God, oh god just i'm just thinking about the joker but i mean that's the scary part about it to me is because i remember back in 2005 um there weren't a lot of people that were just like screw the system they just weren't like right. after 9 11 like the early 2000s there were some people but it wasn't like a wide you, you were not in the middle of culture saying screw the man or like uh, the government's all bullshit i hate everything blah blah, blah. i need to rebel that's like a post 2008 thing mm -hmm. um and especially like during the Obama years and stuff like that, that grew, especially I'm, I'm young men I'm focused on right now. There is this movement. You could see it on 4chan. You could see it on the rise of the far right. And like yeah. we got all of those um, symptoms now, like Trump getting elected. Trump got elected because people memed him into a candidate on the 4chan. And it's the same people that would love this movie. Right. And you're sort of like, how did that message about it's an anti-fascist film at the end of the day or a graphic novel, at least. And I think it's also an, an anti-fascist movie. How did that get so perverted that young men feel like they just want to 
break everything and destroy everything because there's why you know even within the movie there's a sense of justice why he's doing all this mm-hmm. um he wants to make things right you know the government lied to the people um and you know they spread this this and the, the other crazy thing are all these like parallels to now yeah where there's like this virus oh and they even gosh. see in the opening like five minutes that the USA is a leper colony because of this <laughs> virus this is essentially coming true. I know. Um, uh, but like, how did, I don't know. I just don't get how people latched onto this movie and like characters like the dark Knight. And now I'm thinking about the Aurora shooter who was like dressed up. It's like all these weird things were happening where, and it's almost exclusively young men. They just want to, destroy the system for some reason that they're in right uh, and this is this i don't i'm not saying that this movie promotes that on some level I, i'm just saying that that like a lot of people took that sort of the vibe of the movie and its message and perverted it towards this extremely anti-social um philosophy that they have and i don't even understand it but like I think that's weird. That's like the that's how I view this movie from these weird these weird lenses. Because on the one hand, yeah, it's kind of a a flaccid, boring movie. But on the other hand, it's really culturally important, right? And it's like a touchstone for a lot of people. As like this is about rebellion. This is about fighting a, a totalitarian country or whatever. But like how that translates into supporting like or being like a boogaloo boy or whatever. Like I don't like how did I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's, um, but it's, it's, I mean, you were, you mentioned the acting earlier and I think there's yeah. a, a thread here that maybe needs to be put at front and center. And yeah. when, and you know, what, whether, okay. So first off, like you mentioned the acting overall, not bad. I think one okay. of the issues here that adds to like the muddledness of the message of the film is that you have, a character that's faceless and yes that's the whole point of it but i mean one of the distinct uh challenges of adapting a story where you know visually on the page in black and white it works you've got so much inner monologue and so much um backstory and uh philosophy embedded in the text that you don't need to really have that face and yet like because especially because they like put him as a mart you know portray him as a martyr at the end of it all uh, spoiler alert for the 15 year old movie. Um, you have this intense, like lack of connection that's able to be made. Like net, I do think, you know, as horribly as they treated her character in this adaptation, that Portman is doing so much of the heavy lifting here. Oh and yeah. Hugo weaving is basically just an, you know, a Shakespearean accent and yeah. he's trying his best behind a mask, uh, Fun factoid is that James Perfoy was originally uh, V and he's actually still V in some of the scenes in the final cut of the film, but he uh, just couldn't handle being behind that mask. And especially because they weren't quite sure about how to uh, mic him versus dub in all the audio. Once Perfoy finally dropped out and weaving came in, they decided to just dub it all. And, you know, it's it is it's not like you can tell. But it definitely like something feels off in a lot of those scenes, especially because Portman is like acting so much to the point of you could maybe make the argument that she's overacting, especially after she shaves her hair in the yeah. second half of the film. Oh my God. Um, there's just like this 
there is this you mentioned that it's an empty script and there's also like this emptiness in the performance plus the emptiness of the production design and it just feels like this blank slate that can very be that can easily be this template for a lot of these yeah. angry young usually that's a really men. good point actually that's a super good point because yeah i mean ultimately it is a sort of like hey it's a rebellion and like sure it's against this quote-unquote fascist whatever but you can label anything fascist i mean like look at american politics today like someone would label me a fascist i'm like what are you talking <laughs> like that makes no sense uh but like that's just Don't sort of the mentality of like yeah exactly right <laughs> exactly perfect um yeah and it's i don't know it's uh yeah i think that's a really good point and it kind of reminds me as you were talking about that it reminded me a lot of fight club and mm-hmm. how that movie um and that book had a very specific message to it that when the movie hit and fincher did it um you know the movie's amazing uh it's such a visual i mean one of the most visually like um, awesome films of the 90s um and it had i think i thought i got a very sort of specific message from it but that message was totally different than the guys who like hang out in gyms and watch that movie and love it right you know what i mean like it's just like a very different viewpoint of that and whereas that movie i think you know was visually way beyond this um there was a blank slate feeling to it where it didn't really criticize things uh, or didn't really take uh, a bold stance in one direction or the other about what was happening. Um, and yeah, it's da- it can be kind of dangerous. I mean, art is dangerous at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you don't, uh, and once you create it, it's out there in the open and you don't control how people are going to see it. Yeah. I, I don't that- think there was any intention here by, um, you know, the director or anybody involved to be like, Oh, I want to create this movie. That's going to get people to rebel. Right. I yeah. thought, I mean, they probably just wanted to like, honestly, just want to make money. Yeah. <laughs> like they wanted, And it did make money, right? It made like what? Um, $113 million worldwide back in 2005, you know, probably almost four times exits production budget. So it did, it did do quite well. And the critics seemed to like it like 73% run tomatoes, six, only 61% top critics though, which is not fantastic. Um, but that RT score, the audience score 90%. Yeah. And then even more surprising, the letterbox score, 76%. They almost put it as like a God tier film. Right. Or 76 out of 100, I should say. Uh, IMDb, 82. You almost never see an eight score on IMDb. Nope. Uh, Cinema score is okay to B+. Um, I don't know. There's just like, and there's that divide. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, this is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to say it. Um, (laughs) Do it. Critics write they're educated about film and in general they probably are pretty like intellectual people um they see a movie like this and they're like okay like i get what they're trying to do i know who alan moore is it doesn't work like it just doesn't work and you can see that in some of the the negative reviews um you know the masses who go and see this who aren't they took like poli sci 101 in college and that was it and like that's their interest in politics or political theory in general and they see this, they're going to see it through a completely different lens than someone who studies this, studies film and all this sort of stuff. And so that's where you're going to get that like Grand Canyon between what some of the critics are thinking and what the masses are thinking. And that distance, I think, has only gotten wider. I think if we went out and interviewed people about this movie, like if I pulled if I walked out on my street now in St. Louis and picked out a guy who was like, you know, let's say like 30, mid 30s, 30 something. Uh, 
and you ask him about it, he's like, oh yeah, I love that movie. It's fucking great. <laughs> and like, that's just, it's one of those films that it does just enough to entertain people and gives them that blockbuster sort of feeling that grandiosity mm-hmm. uh, on screen, but it's a mile wide, but like a centimeter deep. Right. And there's well, just nothing, nothing to hold on to there. Yeah. Case in point. Uh, I mean, first of all, the guy that you imagined on your street, I mean, the first thing that popped in my mind is like you, you stop him and then he goes back to his office as a hedge fund manager. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you make a very good point that this is clearly like just literally capitalizing on the concept yeah. of rebellion rather than actually taking it seriously and putting too much care into uh, uh, bringing it to the screen with fidelity. And maybe that's going back to our question of like, what, why the Wachowskis um, pass on directing? Maybe they knew. Maybe, you know, with their uh, work doing the Matrix trilogy that they saw the writing on the wall in that respect and were like, there's no way that this can be done the way we want it to. So let's throw a bone to our buddy James and let him deal with uh, Warner Brothers trying to adapt Alan Moore um, successfully. I don't know. Uh, but going back to what I was about to say, case in point, um, Ebert, uh, this is kind of, uh, the, the, this is like the high point, I think, of Ebert um, in the mid 2000s, kind of giving a good review to everything. Uh, yeah. Kind of, uh, you know, he's he's been happily married for almost a decade at that point, And he's just kind of riding high and uh, um, doesn't have uh, Siskel around anymore to uh, to argue with. But he wrote. Uh, I have not read the original works, do not know what has been changed or gone missing, but found an audacious confusion of ideas in V for Vendetta and enjoyed their manic disorganization. I think that's pretty emblematic, probably, of like you mentioned, Dan, of the the average person yeah. um, that enjoyed the film. It's just like, it's less, just like, you know, the amount of bloodshed in the, the final knife fight, um, the uh you know general uh vitriolic feelings of the characters against a bigger force that feels insurmountable but then manages to find a way to uh take it down um by the way just like the side character work in here i was really just like reminded of how disappointing um the the attempts at bringing to life uh evie's boss and the which is Stephen Fry, like he's trying as best as he can, but he only gets like a few scenes to to do anything with it. John Hurt as the high chancellor. And it's just like yelling at the screen, like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to his original role as Winston in the also yeah, disappointing adaptation of 1984. Yeah, um, I forgot about that. I forgot. He, yeah. yeah. But so like, it's just like you not thinking too hard, like, oh, yeah, there's stuff going on. And. It makes me feel something and not worrying too much about the the details. Similarly, Claudia Pugue of USA Today was one, one of the only other kind of solid positive reviews of the time. She wrote, the multi-layered film can be appreciated strictly as an action thriller or for its deeper message about personal responsibility, political oppression, and revolutionary change. One powerful theme centers on the notion that ideas live forever, their power undiminished, even as those who espouse them die. I thought it was very... Uh, delightfully ironic that she points that one powerful theme out but then fails to make any kind of point about actual messages regarding personal responsibility oppression or change that the movie attempts to put forth because it doesn't really try very hard there's nothing really there other than that main mantra of you know people die but ideas live on which isn't that profound and is only one 
you know, fingernail deep of uh, what Moore was trying to do in the original work. Yeah, no, totally. And I think one of the things I was sort of watching uh, an interview with Alan Moore about this uh, today, and the one of the things I forgot about the graphic novel is that in the graphic novel, you know, he depicts the uh, Norse fire, this fascist mm-hmm. party. He goes into like in-depth background of who these people are and they're normal people. Yeah, They're not like, they're not villains. They're not like caricatures of evil. Uh, they're just normal people who get swept up in this thing. And uh, there's a whole other backstory that, that happened in the graphic novel that's not part of the movie that makes it a, a lot more believable that a fascist government would rise up like that. Um, but I think that that's a huge missing part of this film is that it, in doing the good versus evil thing, you make evil this other, which it's not. Right. It's not this other thing. It can literally happen. It can happen here. Right. We've seen it almost happen here in the last four years. Um, And it's normal people. And it kind of reminds me a lot of like people that I know who are Trumpers who like five years ago, never in a million years would I'd say they would support somebody that basically wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. (laughs) Right. I would never in a million years. These are like these are like bankers. These are lawyers. These are people who are highly intellectual who are probably better than me in school uh, make way more money than I do but in the space of four years they have become unfortunately supporters of a fascist and that I mean we've seen it real time happen and I think where this movie gets it so wrong and a lot of the sort of negative reviews kind of say you know it's um, it just does not capture the political reality of what can happen when a group of people decides that other people shouldn't exist and it doesn't, doesn't get that. It doesn't compute that transition or the reality of how that happens and how it can be so banal and how an accountant can become a fascist, you know, just by supporting this one person. And before you know it, they're against all Muslims and they hate gay people and they want to start, you know, they want they want, it, and we saw this firsthand. They want children to be put in cages because they're not, I mean, it's like, it happens almost overnight uh, and it's normal people that do it. And this movie completely misses that point. It's like, if you want to see the fascist look in the mirror, like it's there. And I think that's one of the things that this film just does not understand whatsoever. And it's one of the reasons why you know, the negative reviews like posturing radical chic um, uh, V for Medetta is not a movie of ideas so much. It is an idea mall. <laughs> Um, or like a piece, a piece of, this is the one he chose a piece of pulp, uh, claptrap has no insights whatsoever into totalitarian psychology. It doesn't none. There's nothing here in this movie that is insightful about why a government like that would happen or why a group of people would do that. It's uniquely frustrating because John Hurt was a good choice for that role, except they, they just didn't like, he's such a great actor. He could be the kind of like meek dude that would then rise to that level. But we only see the post fascism, like the, yeah, you see the dark Vader. Exactly. You don't see, you know, the prequels, which I love. (laughs) Rehabilitated. You don't see revenge. What is it? Return of the synth. What's the third prequel called? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Revenge of the synth. Genius. That movie's genius. I love that movie. It's the best Um, one of the prequels. Absolutely. And also came out, wait, 
Did that come out the same year as this? Yeah. Well, yeah. Why did we do yeah. that one? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, in any event, okay. I've, I think I've ranted enough about politics on this movie. Um, any closing thoughts about this thing? I have some letterbox user stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I think you should read, these are great. read, read these are a couple great. of them at least. Uh, as a radical socialist college student, it's illegal <laughs> for me not to give this a good review. Uh, which I think is very true. I think, and one of the things I said to you when we were doing this, when I was watching, I was like, I feel like I'm both at a Trump rally and a Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders rally (laughs) because V for Vendetta is the Venn diagram in the middle. It's the little middle part where people vote for Trump and people vote for Bernie Sanders are on the same world because it's all about what fucking the system, destroying whatever institution you want to destroy for whatever reason, I guess. Um, Clearly I've become a neoliberal (laughs) in my older age. Institutions (laughs) must stand. (laughs) Uh, in any event, uh, incredibly well structured, incredibly impeccably paced. That's all wrong. So this letterbox user is wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, Viva aims to be a blockbuster for the thinking man. Instead, it ends up a blockbuster for the man who thinks he's the thinking man. That's perfect. Yeah, that's like the perfect summary of this movie. Yeah. Um, man, I'm angry that I had to watch this. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm glad that you uh, came to your senses because next week we're hopefully going to watch uh, one of the best reviewed movies of the year. Well, we are going to yes. watch one of the best reviewed movies of the year, whether we will. I was going to pick like Hillbilly Elegy, right? Um, just to get you back for this movie. And I just watched the first half hour of that movie tonight. And I thank God that I changed my mind. We're going to do uh, Brandon Cronenberg's. That is the son of body horror master David Cronenberg. Uh, his first film that he wrote and direct Possessor. Uh, science fiction psychological horror film that's a mouthful uh it's now available on vod uh i'm super excited to talk about that movie i love horror movies this one is very fascinating interesting it's a small film that not a lot of people are talking about and i think it's a good movie to dive into so uh join us next week for possessor